I've had numerous conversations with people, and if they talk about transgenderism, they'll lower their voice. They'll look around them to see if anybody is listening. It, it's as if we're we're in Germany in 1939, and 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 my friend wants to say something a little bit negative about Hitler. Hello and welcome to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a monthly podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of the early 21st century. This month, I am delighted to be joined by the novelist Lionel Shriver. Lionel barely needs an introduction. She is the author of numerous novels, including prize-winning novels, and she is a columnist with The Spectator. And she is a literary figure who is also a public figure. Her thoughts on art, politics and society always make an impact in the public sphere. A reviewer for The Washington Post once said that if Jodie Pico has her finger on the zeitgeist, Lionel Shriver has her hands around its throat. Over the next hour, I hope we will tighten even harder that grip around the throat of the zeitgeist. Lionel, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. I want to start by talking about something that you've written about quite a lot, which is the impossibility of art in the era of identity politics, because it strikes me, and I know it strikes you as well, that one of the most tragic accomplishments of the politics of identity has been to create an, uh, an aura of suspicion and even censorship around art, literature and entertainment. And, and what it's done, it seems to me, is polluted these things with politics so that art and literature are less and less judged by their beauty or their meaning or their humanity, but rather by whether they accord with the ideological worldview of the new identitarians does this film have enough gay characters is it acceptable for this white author to write a story about black people should this cis actress play a transgender character you have written about this cultural correctness and as you put it there is now a, a torrent of do's and don'ts that bind our imaginations and make the process of writing and publishing fearful so in your view, where does this kind of new Stalinism come from and, and how destructive is it of the artistic endeavor? Well, I had an interesting conversation with a professional critic recently. Um, she teaches criticism uh, at the New School and, and more recently at Columbia. And she says that when she's uh, speaking to students, you know, say about 20 years old, it never occurs to them that their job isn't as a critic to assess an author, say, in, in terms of <clears throat> morality, you mm. know, mm. Whether, whether or not this piece of art serves uh, the political purposes that they believe to be good. And I found that shocking. Uh, and, and she says it's, it's almost impossible to to dislodge them from this viewpoint of of what what a critic's job is, uh, and I am starting to see this notion of what a critic's job is uh, emerge in reviews often written by younger people mm. of my own work, so that I'm uh, I'm starting to spot a certain genre of review 
that uh, whereas uh, the the author has often come at one of my books with a preconceived notion of who I am out in the world, what my political opinions are, often uh, often it's a preconceived hostility. And therefore, the book has been read at a great distance. You know, there are different ways of reading. Mm. And um, reading demands a kind of surrender. Uh, even if you come out of that surrender and, and pull back out and decide, actually, this book has a lot of problems or, uh, you know, I, maybe I didn't like it, in order to give the book a chance you have to you have to be submerged within it mm. and give over and these uh these reviews i'm talking about those readers refuse to do that and so when you you keep the you know you keep a solid 2 feet between you and the text um and you're just looking at it for for sins yes right mm-hmm. and by the way you always find them yeah it's it's fascinating that you say that you need to surrender to a book or you need to surrender to art in many ways in order to appreciate it fully and it's almost as if we've created a culture uh, in which that is actively discouraged and instead you approach art or literature or film you know you have these people who go to watch movies and then they go home and write a tumblr blog about how many minutes the female characters spoke for in comparison with the male characters and and what you realize is that we've created a new generation who are incapable of appreciating art which is seems to me to be a great loss for them as well as for the artists or the writers on the receiving end of some of their um, highly politicized criticisms i entirely agree i think that that there's a huge loss on the part of the audience because that distance i'm describing um it pertains not just to a reader in say my books mm. it it is a distance that you're describing in relation to all of art because there's a there's a clinical remove you know that, that there's a kind of uh, uh scientific examination mm. of whether or not this is this thing is meeting prescribed criteria mm. i completely agree and i wonder how how new this phenomenon is i mean obviously there have been examples in the past historic examples where political demands have been made of art and artists and writers have been expected to depict their society or the people in their society in a particular way um and not only in in tyrannical regimes but also in the west itself i always thought that um ray bradbury's um, coda that he wrote for the 1979 edition of Fahrenheit 451 was w- captured very well some of these problems. So he talked about how he continually got letters from people saying, well, you don't have enough of this minority group in your books, or you've depicted this minority group in the wrong way. And his argument in his coda was that there is more than one way to burn a book. And and what this kind of pressure, this political pressure does, is it, it, it withdraws the artist's independence and it kind of flattens literature out or irons it out so that it all uh, says the right, acceptable, uh, correct thing. And And his argument really was, in essence, that when it comes to literature and art, um, the, the creator is, in many ways, the dictator. It, it's his it, you, entirely, and you. And his argument was that that's you, what makes it so fun. Yes, <laughs> and and his argument was that you people out there, you have no jurisdiction over the realm of my imagination, and that was a very clear point he made. And one of the things I think is a shame now is that there seem to be very few writers or artists or creators who who are willing to stand up to 
the new uh, moral correctness or this new pressure that is put on them to write in a particular way or to say certain things. Which I find dismaying. Hmm. Um, I, I don't understand it be- because the the impulse to make stuff, you know, to write books, is uh, is one of claiming jurisdiction, as you put it. Mm. And it's what it is what makes it fun. Uh, you know, no one's the boss of you. Yeah. This is your world. <laughs> You're in complete control. And I don't understand the impulse to abdicate that world. Yeah. Uh, uh, and to be, I, I'm afraid that in this um, social media internet age, we're a little too aware of our audiences. And what I treasure about right. what I do for a living is being alone in my study. Mm. And I am not, especially, I'm often asked, for whom do I write? Well, it sounds vain and even delusional to say for myself. But ultimately, mm. of course, any artist worth his or her salt is 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 writing for the fun of it, you know, be, to or to make something that means something to them. Mm. And not to other people. It's not about other people. And uh, the other thing that dismays me is just why do we read? Not just why do we write. Why do we read? And I don't understand people who read in order to have their political viewpoints reaffirmed. I can understand why you would read an op-ed or a column mm. that that reinforces your views, which I'm afraid in nonfiction is all we ever do. Mm. Discouraging yeah. for a columnist. Um <laughs> But but I don't understand going for, to art for that. And yes. I don't understand either why you would want to read a novel just because it is, it is a display of virtue. Mm. I, in fact, my instincts are completely the opposite. I like mischief. I like humor. I like people who are being a little outrageous. I like transgression, you know, and that used to be one of the main roles that art played was to you know to to cheat to break the rules yeah. to you know I, I i guess i'm betraying partly the fact that i'm a late child of the 60s and we we like being bad mm. we, we, we mm. were <laughs> i mean yeah there were some of some people were out there marching for environmentalism and everything mm. and and that was our tedious side <laughs> you know, our fun side was taking drugs and and um, having a lot of sex and saying outrageous things and and using bad words in in, in at a time that it still meant something to use bad words. It was still fun, um, I, and that's the world I grew up in. Mm. I have never entirely left it. Yeah, and so I'm just a little mystified. Yeah. I, I confess by the generation, a couple of generations behind me, w- w- that are so in- prissy and involved in goodness. <laughs> I mean, get a life, you know. I, I, and and you know, read some books that don't have to do with racial and gender justice. Yeah. And I, I in terms of taking on um, my own material, I don't like having it dictated to me. Yeah. That I, you know, first off, these are the issues that really matter. And I think that we lose a sense, we get so focused narrowly on race and gender politics right now that we think that is all of politics, mm. right? Mm. So, and we think, therefore, that is all of morality. Yeah. And we, we lose a sense that what we're really in, incessantly focusing on is, is human hierarchy. Mm. 
Okay, so that's all we care about. And, and that's all we discuss. And that's all that seems to matter. But there, it's a big world out there. You know, so that's a way of wearing blinkers. Yeah. And, you know, as as a writer, I, I can see how easy it is to get trapped into thinking that that's all there is to write about. Absolutely. And I thought I think your mention of the 60s is really apposite here, because it strikes me that one of the most shocking things or, or, or disturbing things about the new kind of warriors for moral virtue who are constantly trying to impose these political diktats on, on the creators of art and culture is that they, they are actually reminiscent of the activity of what used to be conservatives and stuffy conservatives mm-hmm. and um, hardcore religious people. If you think from, you know, the controversy over Ulysses in the 1920s through to the banning of um, the the gay fantasy poem about Jesus Christ, uh, the love that dare not speak its name, which was subject of a blasphemy trial in Britain in the late 1970s. Through that period of the of the 20th um, century and, and the kind of thing that the 60s radicals and counterculturalists were reacting against was a moral virtue imposed on art. Um, especially on transgressive art mm-hmm. by uh, a, a conservative blue rinsed um, religious sections of society. And one of the things I find quite shocking is that among these young people who perceive of themselves as progressive and radical and perceive, perceive of themselves as very daring mm-hmm. and actually perceive of themselves as transgressive, funnily mm. enough, they are rehabilitating that um, old stuffy view in new language, I think. Yeah, I've written about this. Right. I mean, there has been a, a weird uh, inversion during my lifetime. Uh, but I, I do have to break it to the social justice warriors. They're the ones who are big, a big drag, mm. okay? Mm. This prissiness that mm. I talked about, yeah. um, it, it goes back to the 1950s into which I was born. And, um, you know, there have always been people out there trying to control you and tell you what you could and couldn't do. And uh, they have a very rigid version of the world, and they want to impose it on you, and you're not given an op- the option to, uh, to opt out. And uh, it's always been the job of the more, the, the freer, the more radical, the questioning to break free of that. And uh, now it's the young people who mm. are taking on the old fogey role. Mm. You know, and I find myself in this weird position uh, at the age of 61, you know, being out in the forefront still, you know, I, sh- I should be out, I should be out of date, right? <laughs> I should be behind. And instead, I find that, that, that progress has, has gone so backwards mm-hmm. that, that, that I'm, I, here I am, you know, out with a few people, also old crusties, <laughs> trying to preserve freedom of speech, mm. and it shouldn't be my job anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But wh- one of the um, one of the most insidious uh, identitarian ideas, I think, is cultural appropriation, which I know you've written about. Which is uh, this is the idea that it is wrong for someone in one culture, particularly the dominant culture, as it's always referred to, to borrow ideas from or practices from another culture or to depict another culture or to assume that they have the right to inhabit the experiences of this other culture who they don't directly know or or, or weren't brought up in and so on and it's it, it's reached utterly crazy levels in recent months you know jamie oliver has been oh, taken to task gets, it does nothing but get more absurd it gets more and more absurd as you go along so he's taken to task for creating jerk 
uh, chicken rice. Um, students fancy dresses policed all the time. There's this bizarre online industry of policing um, white female celebrities' hairstyles, I've noticed. So if any of them have cornrows or dreadlocks, they will be instantly taken to task for cultural appropriation and crimes against black women's hair and so on. So it's reached utterly uh, bizarre proportions. Um, but it it does have a very serious impact. And this is one of the things that you touched upon in your um, famous or infamous speech at the Brisbane Writers' Festival in 2016, where... Uh, and it's only got worse since. And it's got worse, because this is what I was going to ask you, because you made this fantastic point there where you talk where you say that the ultimate end point of this idea that you have to keep your hands off other people's experience is that there can be no fiction. You cannot make stories. You cannot write stories if you're not allowed to inhabit or think about or empathize with the experiences mm -hmm. of others. And then in your speech, you said, I hope this is a passing fad. But clearly, it's not a passing it's fad. It's definitely a fad. Right. Okay. It's just not passing. Right. <laughs> Or not fast enough for me. Right. And I do think that uh, when this era is, is over, and all eras are over eventually, uh, that concept will be looked back on as one of the absurd excesses of the time. And so do you still hold to your idea that you pushed in 2016, which is that it, it's so serious because, you know, we all laugh at the ridiculous examples of students being forbidden from wearing sombreros because that's to culturally appropriate Latin American experience. You know, that's all good fun and, and ridiculous and bizarre and scary. But you hold to the idea that this is it's a it's a serious problem because it, it, in the level of literature in particular it does actually send the signal that you should stay in your own lane write about what you know and what you've experienced which seems to me to really lessen um demean the whole purpose of literature which is to broaden the horizon and to inhabit experiences beyond your own yes it's anti-fiction i right. mean it, it it the end point is everyone writes memoir and that's it <laughs> yeah. um and my life is not very interesting, <laughs> so I'm sorry to break it to you. I um, I object to, to this concept on many levels. Uh, I would push back that your experiences does not necessarily only belong to you. Mm. That is, mm -hmm. as we speak, you are part of my life, right? Mm. You're part of my day. You're You're part of my world now. Uh, what we say to each other is my experience. I experience you, and now you belong to me. <laughs> <laughs> Scary, isn't it? Um, and I would extend that to I walk out in the world. Um, we're speaking in New York right now. Uh, there are many African Americans in my surround. They are part of my life. I say hello to them. Um they're part of the larger politics of this city, belongs to me, right? Not just to African-Americans. It belongs to me. Mm. African-Americans in New York are part of my world, too. So, and that extends to all ethnicities, anyone, and, and even people I read about, that's part of my life, right? I spent my time reading about these people, mm. thinking about these people. Uh, and, and I should, by the way, because I should live in a large world that has many people in it, many of whom are different from me. And therefore, if I enter into an imaginary world, uh, I'm going to people it from that experience. And so you can't lock your 
experience up and say it belongs to you. Not if you're, a, because you are part of my world. In fact, you know, in, in the great big giant sense, everyone on earth is part of my world. Mm. They belong to me. And that it also extends to history because I am a part of human history. And therefore that history belongs to me. And I think that impulse to own all of it is healthy. And it leads to education and curiosity and inquiry and exploration. And this idea that, you, you know, you live in a closet and, you know, this is my broom. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is not good. <laughs> it's not going to make good art, uh, but it's also not going to make good life. And the, the other, my other objection is to the commodification of experience. And I think that's, especially in literature, that's what's behind it. Yes. Um, the, uh, certain minorities have got it into their head because the, that's what this concept encourages is that they own their experience and they can sell it. And therefore, if they, uh, if they corner the market, if they restrict supply just in economic terms, then the price is going to go up. Right. So if, um, if those white writers can't, can't write about Asians or, or, or blacks or, or, Native Americans or whatever, then people who belong to these groups uh, will make more money. Actually, I think that's not really the way publishing works. Mm. And to the contrary, I think what you're going to see is a lot of mainstream literature becomes extremely cautious. Yeah. And uh, ironically starts excluding the very groups who believe you know, that they, that they want to be more represented in literature. I mean, it's just completely perverse. I mean, I'll give you an example. Mm. I uh, recently published a collection of uh, two novellas and uh, ten short stories called Property. Now, there's one short story in there that has a black character in it. It's not even a main character. Now, you know what? If I'm going to step back and criticize that collection, it's probably a little too white, right? <laughs> that's that's where I'd criticize it. Um, but no, hmm. I have had countless reviews zero in on this one short story that has, I mean, it's not quite a walk-on character, but it's it's definitely a secondary character. And I swear every single line that pertains to that character has been gone over for, for sins, yeah. you know? Yeah. And... Uh, she speaks in a light, light black uh, vernacular. What I now uh, gather is called AAVE, African American okay. Vernacular English. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> and I've also read that I'm not supposed to be able to write that anymore. <laughs> now, by the way, that would make um, the likes of The Wire, mm. um, Homicide yep. on the Street, yep. um, Clockers, really great stuff out out no can't can't do that um david simon no can only write about white people and that to me i rest my case because that stuff is great but i was it was really sobering to discover i mean part of it is because of my reputation and so you know for for being a sinner mm -hmm, i think mm -hmm. um that it's been examined so closely but it's it was creepy mm. it's been creepy well I was... and 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 you know if i'm not careful yeah. That kind of uh, having it backfire or at least having it, you know, oh, it's going to draw attention to this character 
what if I write something that's going to be perceived as stereotyped or or somehow not right? That discourages me from writing writing uh, characters of different races. It yeah. does, and yeah. even me. Yeah. And that's that's how I realize how bad it's getting. This is not a small issue. Yes. I was going to ask you um, exactly that question, which is what you think are uh, the consequences of this kind of political, cultural climate? Because, I mean, if you think historically about the consequences, if if this had existed in the past, you know, hardly any of the great pieces of literature would have been written or maybe not published. You know, men writing female characters, rich people writing about poor people, mm-hmm. um, all sorts of literature would be seen as cultural appropriation or... or all of Dickens is all poverty of Dickens, porn. Uh, poverty <laughs> porn, exactly. All of that would have been, you know, there would have been a million think pieces saying, don't let Dickens write again. But in terms of the consequences, because there is, I've noticed, in, in response to people like you and others who, who raise... Um, concerns about this culture there will often be the pushback well it's not as bad as you're making out there's no law against this stuff uh we're just saying please don't do it but i think that really underestimates um the potential for self-censorship and 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 a a kind of censorship that we might not necessarily see or even hear about Mm -hmm. because it takes place pre- publication do you think that kind of thing is happening i think the censorship is is certainly happening drastically on on an individual level that that people feel constrained about what kind of topics they can take on what kind of characters they can use in in fiction um and i also think that it's it's taking place in a in non-public usually non-public publishing level Mm. that is in, in relation to to editors what they choose to publish. Yeah. Right? So there's no record of that. You're never going to find out why certain works have been rejected. And, you know, then then there are a few few little public signs of what I think is going on on a massive level behind closed doors, uh, like that um, poem in The Nation that I wrote about mm-hmm. in my column about six weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It was a perfectly harmless poem, but it used a little bit of A-A-V-E, mm. and it was a white writer. And it was a, it was a l- little microcosm of what happened to that short story, every single line gone over and picked out. Yeah. This time, instead of not just choosing not to publish it, they did publish it and then kind of unpublished yes. it. Right. Yeah. They actually left it online, which I suppose is astonishing. Yeah. Um, but um, the 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 apology for publishing this little poem was far longer than the poem. Yes. <laughs> and and really nauseating. Yeah. And I I I felt that that was an example of editors who are making many many the kind of editor that they're making many many decisions every day in accordance with the same sentiments yeah and you don't know about it yeah so there are all kinds of other poems or short stories or articles or everything that are getting rejected because they don't fit the template yeah um and other others are being changed to fit the template and it's a you know on the self-censorship level all all i know to do is to push back as publicly as i can and take the flag Mm. And also try to push back in the confines of my study because I start recognizing this encroaching cowardice. And I resent the imposition 
that I feel for myself as much as or more yeah. than I, I resent external imposition and and therefore yeah there are, there are a couple chapters in my new book that are, that are going to get me into trouble <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it you're listening to the Brendan O'Neill show it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review that is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show but it's 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 that process that you describe where it's almost like people have a Stasi in their own head, kind of. Uh, so it's no longer the Stasi in your attic putting um, cameras or, or recording devices and making sure that the artist or the playwright or the, or whoever it is is not saying things that they shouldn't be saying. But instead, you install one of your own, and uh, and the danger, I think, and I, I mean, if even you have kind of had a feeling of this at times, you can imagine what other writers who are uh, who might not be as brave as you are have a, an incredibly strong sense of pressure mm-hmm. that there are certain things they shouldn't say and certain things they shouldn't depict. It, I thought the the nation uh, and its apology for that poem, I thought, was, and, and your column about it was that was a brilliant example of the kind of climate we're talking about, and it made me think of. Um, you know, 100 years ago or so, George Bernard Shaw wrote an apology um, after one of his plays came in for flack for its depiction of women uh, riding bicycles and smoking and being quite modern. But his apology, of course, was ironic. Right. And it was one of and it is actually one of the great defenses of artistic freedom and freedom of speech. And he has that great point where he says all great truths begin as blasphemies. And if you crush blasphemy, you crush the discovery of truth. And so you have this uh, over a period of 100 years where writers or public in the past would have published an ironic apology as a kind of two-fingered salute to those who wanted to shut them up. Now you have a progressive magazine like The Nation publishing a deadly serious apology for a poem. And so I think that does capture the climate you're talking about. What made that story particularly grotesque was that the poet apologized as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the apology did sound right out of re-education camp. Yes. And this is one of those stories um, that might have redounded more to his benefit because it ended up getting a lot of press um, if he hadn't, if he had stuck up for himself. Yeah. Um, as it is, I'm not sure he's going to be getting a book contract out of that story. Yeah. I mean, it's a genuinely tragic incident in, in, in literary history, I think. But the, the kind of pressures to conform to a... a narrow set of views don't only pertain to artists yeah and i think that's important to say yeah because we're we're living in a time that everybody is starting to feel very self-conscious about what they can and cannot say and to get anxious even at their own dinner parties yeah the column that i shouldn't write and probably will this (laughs) this weekend is going to deal with the with transgenderism you notice i start to stutter as soon as i have a question (laughs) on transgenderism coming up like my mouth seizes up (laughs) um i'm not only interested in the story that i'm going to peg it on but on the in in the broader situation whereby there are only certain things there are only certain views about this that are acceptable and this is not not just a constraint that pertains to journalists It, it 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 pertains to everybody. Yeah. And what horrifies me is how rapidly the entire society embraced or seemed to embrace an enthusiasm for this movement and 
only certain things are permissible to say, and 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 that's all that gets said. I yeah. mean, it's just you can't twi- you can't question it at all. Yeah. It's just the most wonderful thing that's ever happened, and there should be more of it. Yeah. Um. And that's it. That's yeah. and and uh, I've had numerous conversations with people, just regular people, not necessarily other writers, and if they talk about the whole issue of transgenderism they'll lower their voice they'll look around them to see if anybody is listening and they'll often even say something about well you know this is off the record or yeah it, it's as if we're we're in germany in 1939 yeah. and <laughs> and and my friend wants to say something a little bit negative about hitler i mean it's just it's it's surreal it is how yeah. frightened people are of saying anything remotely negative about what is really transforming a lot of people's lives. Now, yeah. whether that's for the better or for worse, that's what we can't talk about. Yes. You know, uh, and I'm just astonished by the utter stifling, the successful utter stifling of debate about what is happening to children. And at least we should be able to talk about it. Mm. I mean, m- maybe it is great that now you don't have to decide decide because you were born a girl that you have to stay one maybe everyone should get to choose it's going to be extremely expensive Mm. but let's talk about it first and we we have signally skipped this conversation Mm. and anybody who tries to conduct it who who pushes back a tiny bit is totally denounced and jumped on that's why i shouldn't write the column that's why you should write it, because right. um, it, my view is that uh, if you are not allowed to speak about something um, in the way that you describe, and I think that's exactly right, the way you describe it, that suggests it's probably something people should speak about. It's, it's you know, I, I come from a Catholic background years and years and years and years ago, and it, to me it reminds me of, it's like if you deny that a man can become a woman now it's similar to if you denied when you were a catholic that the the, the bread in church becomes the body of christ so transgenderism Trans- is now the same as trans substantiation in terms yes. of what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say and there is that kind of religious ethos around it i have a question on transgenderism that i want to come on to in a second but i i, I completely agree with a comment you've made about how this is not just something that impacts on writers and artists, but it is a culture now that is felt by almost everyone. And and people, um, I think, uh, imbibe it and take it on board and uh, either speak quietly or just hold back certain opinions. And that's the kind of culture I think we increasingly live in. And I thought that your point you made about how you feel that you own all of human experience because you've encountered it, you you live among it. And, and I, I was just thinking that in the past, that would have been considered a very progressive, humanistic view of life. What we have now, I think, and I think now this... Now I'm a colonialist. Now you're a colonialist, <laughs> you're a neo-imperialist, you're a cultural imperialist, and you're a racist. This is the, the term that gets attached to people all the you time. You know, I've stopped reacting to that term. Yes, I think that's wise. But, but it strikes me, and this is... an. Uh, taps into something that you've written about quite a lot it strikes me that this is uh, the, the politics of identity has had this incredibly divisive impact 
and has had the uh, impact of undermining what would have traditionally been considered good, liberal, progressive views. So uh, you did a column uh, recently where you said, you know, it used to be cool to have a so what attitude to people's skin colour. That was the right approach. That was the good approach. That was the moral approach. You would be oh, so what. Oh, I was what. saying that's the... That's the desired end. That's point, the desired end. As far point. as I'm concerned, yes. is that 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 is not what is important to us about each other. Yes, and I don't understand going in the opposite direction. And by yes. the way, I've, I've 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 argued the same thing in relation to gender. Yes, um, I'm not interested in. Well, I'm just not interested in being female. Frankly, <laughs> it it bores me. <laughs> I didn't choose it. It has a lot of disadvantages. Most of them are physical. Right. A few of them are social. I'd like the social stuff to go away. Right. Okay. But that's sort of, that's kind of the end. I, I, I don't care about being female and I don't like being forced to care. Like yeah. That, yeah. It's not, I refuse to make it the, one of the primary aspects of my identity. Yeah. And the whole movement is in the opposite direction. Yes. That now we're supposed to fix ourselves on this strict continuum of of uh, gender identity, which I have also written about, is com- is completely dependent on stereotypes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And uh, and actually, that's that's one of my primary uh, objections to this uh, embrace of the transgender movement, because I, when people, you know, if a man transitioning into a woman tells me that he feels like a woman, I don't know what he's talking about. Mm. But it's it's really striking because what I think we seem to be living through at the moment is the rehabilitation of the racial imagination. So that the thing that we thought had been defeated, particularly in the post-war era, mm-hmm. when it really became unsustainable to hold on to those early 20th century racial ideas, we thought we had done away with the racial imagination, but now it's coming back through the politics of identity, which encourages us almost to be myopically racial in how we approach people and to um, to engage with people depending on their background and their skin colour and to think about that all the time. And we're also witnessing the rehabilitation of gender stereotypes, mm-hmm. particularly, as you say, through the transgender ideology, which um, seems to me to be based entirely on the view that um, womanhood is this almost like a pose that you can adopt or a character that you can embrace. Or is an essence. Or is an essence. Yes. Yeah. it's To me, it's worse than that. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, it is a pose, right? right. <laughs> it, is, it is a set of prescribed behaviors and, it, you know, it is... Our concepts of femininity are all stupidly tied up with dresses and high heels and and makeup, a lot of which I, I basically never wear. To me, essence transcends gender. Yes. So yeah, the sense of the one sense of self should be more profound than that. And I don't think that being female is meaningful enough to be an identity. Um, it's it's it 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 encompasses such an enormous range of being yeah that it's meaningless yeah and so that's what i mean when i don't understand when somebody says he feels like a woman yeah. i just don't get it i don't feel like a woman yeah in, in my deepest most profound sense yeah i think that if i woke up you know miraculously in some sci-fi story and tomorrow i was male it would be surprising and it would take me a little while to get used to the new equipment but um i could get my head around it <laughs>
it, it's like we spend. It would be fun and interesting. It would be fun. It would be fun and interesting for a while. Then it would yeah. probably and then and then the novelty would be wear normal. Off. Yeah, it's it's like you know we spend decades and decades trying to escape from biological or cultural boxes that people were constantly trying to force us into you're a black person you're a white man you're a female this is what you are this is your biological inheritance this is your cultural inheritance it, it determines to a large extent what kind of person you will be what kind of character traits you will have you know humanity well the progressive wing of humanity spends a long time pushing back against that as summed up by the great line you know let's judge people by the content of their character mm -hmm. rather than by the color of their skin which you could extend to rather than by their genitalia or anything else so uh, now we're pushing back on that so another example i think of of the kind of weird flip reversal that's happened that you spoke about earlier where the so-called social justice warriors are actually rehabilitating some very backward small c conservative quite dangerous ideas can also be seen in this embrace of a kind of essence-based quite restrictive identity so how has that come about is it a failure of universalism is it a failure of the left is it a collapse of those progressive projects which then creates the space for this how does that kind of thing manifest itself in in what is otherwise a pretty modern hip century i'm a little mystified Right. <laughs> Me too. Uh, I don't know how this happened. Uh, it's almost as if the left went far enough left that you couldn't go farther anymore, and then you just go around in a circle and end <laughs> up on the right. I cannot illuminate you Right. how this happened, except that the, you know, the weird thing about being young is that you haven't been here before. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so history's abstract. The present is immediate. Uh, I, I I just I think a lot of these people are ahistorical. Yeah, I've, I I mm. do feel that when you call um, millennials Soviet, it doesn't make any impact mm. because they didn't grow up uh, with the Soviet Union. They don't, they don't know what you're talking about. They sometimes struggle, I think, to make connections between what they do and what other obviously nastier people do so you know um saudi arabia is 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 looking into criminalizing certain forms of satire online particularly mm -hmm. if it ridicules religious beliefs and so on and there's a bit of anger about that in the west and you want to grab these people by the scruff of the neck and say well you guys have spent the past few years trying to criminalize islamophobia which mm -hmm. includes criticism of religion as well as discrimination against muslims which we can agree is a bad thing so uh, i that i think as well as the that's actually a what i've used as an example in one of my columns sorry to keep referring to those yes um, please. but i do write about what i care about <laughs> i'm fiercely secular and despite having or perhaps because of having a, a very religious upbringing mm. it didn't work with mm. me at all <laughs> by the by the age of about eight yeah uh, so I am critical of religions and generally feel that uh, on balance they have had a negative effect historically. Now that's just my viewpoint. And I would extend that criticism to all religions, perhaps not equally because they vary in the degree to which they ruin people's lives. <laughs> you know, I don't think Buddhism is as big of an imposition <laughs> as Islam, mm. for example. Yeah. And I don't want it to be, I, I don't want what I just said to be regarded as hate speech. Yes. Now, the, 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 the larger point of that column was what's especially ignorant about the identity politics movement 
is that in their policing of what you can and cannot say, especially cannot, there there is this blithe assumption that the ability to shut people up, that they are embodying and embracing and promoting, uh, is is never going to pertain to them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They're always going to be the ones in control telling other people what to say and do. Uh, and they don't understand that once you privilege something like the concept of hate speech, yeah. which I, I, I find very dangerous. Yeah. Unfortunately, the United States has not embraced it, and the UK is embracing yeah. it. And it's, I mean, it's death because hate speech is in the eye of the or the ear of the beholder. Yeah, I, I think it's naive in the extreme to imagine that uh, these kind of controls. Being that you're imposing are never going to be imposed yeah. on you, and so um, if you are, for example, fiercely secular, and do you want to be able to criticize religions in general as having had a, if not a, a, a negative effect historically, at least a bad effect on what what it's like to be alive? You know, my view is it's hard enough. <laughs> Don't impose all that joylessness and mass on people. Yeah, if you want to be able to say that then you have to preserve the the larger political and cultural environment in which it is possible to say negative things about religions or or anything else and you know i'd be the first to confess that right if you do have free speech then people are often going to say atrocious things that's one of the things that you allow and to me it's worth the price hmm. Because most of the atrocious things that people say, first off, sound atrocious. So you're just letting people identify themselves as assholes, mm. right? So yeah. let them. I'd rather know. Yeah. Okay? And for the most part, we're also talking about people just saying stuff. And it doesn't have any palpable effect aside from, oh, you know, that was unpleasant mm. or or that offends me. Mm. And, you know, we act as if offense is, it's almost as if someone bashed your head in. Yeah. No, you know, I get offended by stuff all the paper, you sh- all the time. You should see me over the newspaper. Yeah. You know? It's this new idea that um, words wound and that yes. they have this incredibly, um, now, in fact, words can wound intellectually yes, can. speaking, and that's often what they're and designed the to do. And that's the world we live in. And that's the world we live in. But there, but there's this conflation of words and violence, which I find incredibly worrying. And and the thing that I, I find very worrying about hate speech, and, and you're absolutely right that it's been embraced in Britain, uh, the idea of it, and across Europe, there are increasing laws in pretty much every European country against certain forms of hate speech, whether it's misogyny or um, against certain religions and so on. And what that actually does is it actually, in my view, it green lights hatred. Because what you're saying is that these views over here held by these people, whether they are against Islam or they think women shouldn't be equal or whatever it might be, um, are so bad and so awful and, un- and so unspeakable that they can be punished in the in a court of law. And, and what ultimate- you do is you, 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 you push these people out for exposure and ridicule and, and hatred. So it actually creates uh, tension rather than um, withdrawing it from society and creates this kind of um, attempt on the part of people to criminalize more and more forms of speech that they find offensive. Well, what is ultimately being criminalized is the views themselves mm. and the feelings themselves. Yeah. 
you're criminalizing hatred. Yeah. Um, you're criminalizing racism. Those are interior states that we're relying upon ourselves to judge from the outside. And, you know, let he who is not a little bit of a racist <laughs> cast the first stone. Yeah. I mean, I think we all suffer from preconceptions about each other. You know, some of them are positive. Uh, Asians are good at math, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, blacks are good at basketball. <laughs> yeah. Those are racist views, mm. right? None of us is perfect. One of the reasons this is an issue is that we have a problem with it. But criminalizing it is not the answer. Yeah. And I think you're, you're absolutely right that what, what it does is not only does it criminalize the expression of certain beliefs or, or emotions, but it also um, polices internal life because there's this new attempt in Britain, for example, to to um, increase the sentences that people will receive if the crime they commit was motivated by misogyny. So, for example, if they take photographs of a woman without her permission or if they touch a woman in the street. Well, this is the whole concept of hate crime. Yeah. And the United States does have hate crime. And yeah. I have written against that. I, I, again, hate crime is, is about um, demonizing and, and criminalizing an, an internal state that yes. you have to impute. Absolutely, and uh, I'm very suspicious of this. Absolutely, and 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 the terrible. Uh, firstly, there's the you have to impute it, and you have to read it into people. Then the uh, terrible consequences of it is that people are being punished and possibly imprisoned in some instances in Europe, not only for what they do, which is sometimes entirely justifiable. If they punch you in the face, they should be punished for that, but also for what they were thinking while they did it. Yes. So if they punch you in the face because you're a woman. Uh, that's worse, apparently, than if they punch you in the face just because you're Lionel Shriver. Right. And so what's happening there, no one should punch you in the face, of course, but what's happening there is that they are being punished for their ideology or their thought system or it, however it is. It is about the policing it's, it's of the mind. Yeah. Um, so on that question of misogyny and, and, and so on, I want to, and you've already touched on this because I did want to talk I do want to say one thing, yes, though. Yes, please do. And that is, I think we're losing sight of the fact that it is not against the law, nor should it be against the law, to be a misogynist, to be a racist or a xenophobe. You should be able to hate whomever you like. I know it's not pleasant, yeah. right? Or, even if, or, or to, to hate racists and to hate yeah. misogynists. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's your right. Um, and it, it is your right to hold completely goofy views, yeah. goofy or stupid or amoral views yeah. or unmoral views. It's... It's not against the law, and it has to stay not against the law. I absolutely agree. Uh, the, the The idea of policing and punishing what people feel or think is absolutely terrifying, even if it is. Well, hateful. I just I just think we're we're losing sight of that. Yeah. You're listening to the Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. 
I wanted to touch on the issue of feminism a little bit more um, before we run out of time, because you you mentioned earlier how being a woman is not an interesting identity to you, or it's certainly not something that you you do not define your identity through the fact I've that you're a woman. I've started fighting it. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but in relation to um, feminism, um, and I also want to touch on the Me Too movement as well, because you've been critical of them. There's, there is a handful of women, quite bravely in my view, who have criticised the Me Too movement for not only its... Um, criminalization of men's sometimes clumsy come-ons but also for the image it gives of women as these kind of wilting wallflowers who can't cope with as you described it the complicated dance of courtship so just in relation to the points you've made about female identity and and it's not something that particularly interests you and also the criticisms you've made of me too do you think feminism has lost its way or gone down the wrong road or do you think it's now an exhausted movement that's kind of beyond its sell-by day? Of course, all movements suffer from success. To a remarkable degree, feminism has succeeded. And that's to be celebrated. And even, you know, the Me Too movement, I pushed back against it a little because I thought it needed it. There were instances where people were uh, calling out men who'd been getting away with metaphorically with murder, and they deserved it. So my big objection to the movement was that it it rapidly led to a kind of leveling whereby all crimes were the same, all equally bad. And I reject that on a kind of jurisprudential level. Um, (laughs) It's like everybody gets... A, a life sentence, though <laughs> you stole a roll of lifesavers. Mm. It did tend to get, get to go too far and started enticing anyone with a grudge. Mm. So I stopped believing the stories after a while, yeah. which was ironic, yeah. considering that it was all about getting people to believe people's stories. But yeah. the more and more, more credence we gave to people whose stories started to kind of stink, like that Anzar Aziz yeah. story, I mean... I gather he's finally re-emerging from the shadows and starting to do comedy again, but yeah. he didn't do anything. No. You know, all he had was all he did was have a kind of crap date. Yeah, bad dating. Yeah, but so, but I think you're right because what happened was there there was a conflation between what sounded like actual crimes, harassment, abuse, rape in some instances, with um, other examples of just bad sexual etiquette. Yes, and and so it became there, there was the danger of it becoming a, a movement that was. Um, conflating too many things but also took on an almost victorian feel to it where it was about it judging men very, for dating behavior. um prim and uh anti-male yeah uh in a way that i could see was backfiring big time with men even though they were keeping their mouths shut yes if i were a young man it would have discouraged me from dating anybody i would have stayed home with my computer porn yes I'm glad you said that because I was going to raise one of the lines you used in in one of your criticisms of Me Too was that imagine the impact this will have on men if if we create a climate where they don't know if they can look at a woman or ask her if she wants a drink or and you can't say you like her dress anymore you can't say you like her dress there's so many things you can't do or or, or they feel that they can't do I'm sure many women would actually welcome it but men I think might freeze up and you, and you had that line that they would stay in their bedroom and watch their porn and I do think there is a one of the great ironies 
I they're think. already inclined to do that they're anyway. Already they inclined. don't mean to be yes. encouraged. So any more encouragement is going to make it worse. But I do think one of the great ironies of modern feminism it, it is contributed to such a stifling, sometimes depressing culture around sex and sexual mm-hmm. engagement that actually it's inflaming, I think, the porn problem by pushing people off to um, seek their sexual gratification on their own because the world of the complicated court, mm-hmm. uh, courtship is apparently too dangerous and full of minefields. So I think feminism is actually creating a trap for itself on this issue. Yeah, and there's an atmosphere coming off the movement of, uh, that is anti-sex, Yeah, that reviews... Uh, all sex as an assault there's no sense that you that you that women actually enjoy being touched and want to be courted and want to be desired you know there's been a demonization of all male, male desire and and therefore the desire itself is a kind of assault now hey called me old fashioned (laughs) i like being desired right it turns me on. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. And I love being touched by someone whom I love. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So this is alien to me. Yeah. And um, it does feel prudish. It feels, it feels like what my generation thought we overthrew. Yeah. And... And it does seem to deny women agency. And there are a lot of the stories in the Me Too thing... That is kind of like, well, okay, I agree that you shouldn't have been ever been put in a position where you are trading sexual favors for career advancement. But take a little responsibility. If you did trade sexual favors for career advancement, that's a form of prostitution. So you you participated mm. in that marketplace. So I'm sorry you were put in that position and you shouldn't have been, but take a little bit of ownership of you accepted the deal. Yeah. And there, and, and, and instead we're supposed to see women in these positions as perfectly helpless. Yeah. And, and, and less capable than men of uh, dealing with a situation in which everyone's drunk and everyone's fumbling and so on. That's the logical conclusion of this stuff. Yes, or the illogical conclusion is the men start playing the same game, which yes. is what's happened with uh, the uh, Asia Argento yes. case. Yeah, you know, that's right. That kid who's now going after her yeah. for seducing him at the age of 17. And, you know, I know it's completely sexist of me. But somehow I have a hard time imagining that this 17-year-old boy and a very attractive older woman uh, seducing him, that that was a terrible trauma from yeah. which he has never recovered. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. No, I completely <laughs> and utterly agree with that. I'm so skeptical. Uh, okay, so my last question then for you is, so from from what you've been saying, it seems clear to me that you are in favor of sexual desire and sexual liberation. You're in favor of freedom of speech. You are in favor of racial equality or colorblindness. And you're in favor of culture and literature that is transgressive and daring and experimental and winds people up. Those to me, it seem to me to be pretty good 60s style uh, countercultural radical values and yet they are increasingly depicted as problematic and conservative. Right-wing. And right-wing. Which so is it's bizarre. Completely bizarre. And so my question for you then is how can we defend these values, which I think are pretty good values, uh, and encourage other people to do likewise? 
I'm doing what I can, and I can uh, assure you uh, that there are lots of other people like me out there. They're not necessarily writing for the New York Times, or there are there are a lot of people in my generation, anyway, mm. who who f- share broadly share my values. I think what what is important, though, is not people my age. It's a generation, two generations behind me. And that's where I think a, a site like Spiked Online is very valuable. Lionel Shriver, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back next month with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. See you next month. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.